Hello, I'm James Yardley, and welcome to the Investing on the Go podcast. Today, I'm joined by Eduardo Figueredo, the manager for the Aberdeen Latin American Equity Fund. Um, Eduardo, let's start with uh, with Brazil and the recent election. Is Lula good or bad for companies in the stock market? Uh, hi, James. Uh, hi, everyone. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, yeah, and thanks for, for shooting a very straight and direct question on, on this. Um, well, try, trying to be to be direct, uh, I think we and we take the view that the Lula administration uh, is um, can be positive, and I and I stress the can. Um, I think we see um, the, the 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 main thing that needs to be taken uh, into account is that we we probably have two scenarios ahead and and some question marks still. Um, a key question is whether the, the new president will be pragmatic um, and ensure fiscal discipline uh, in, how, in how he manages the, the public accounts, as well as ensuring the attractiveness um, for the private sector. Um, or, uh, you know, if we will see perhaps a more uh, uh, ideological side of him appearing, um, and and perhaps leading to uh, somewhat of a deterioration in in the fiscal accounts and um, and the environment for investments. We believe the fact that we have a balanced Congress, um, as you probably know, we had not only presidential elections happening um, right now, but we had Congress elections as well, and that helped. Uh, because the outcome was a more balanced Congress uh, with center and center-right parties uh, gaining more seats. Um, and that provides checks and balances to, to a new administrations. So tell us a little bit more about that, because our listeners probably don't know the details of, of the Brazilian constitution and things. So where where are we now in terms of the balance of power? How much can can Lula do? Is his part? Does his party still control the Congress, or or do they have a you know limited majority in terms of what they can do? What's the what's the exact situation? Sure, uh, I guess the the main difference that happened, or it was even a surprise to some in in the market, and, and led to a positive reaction of um, of Brazilian assets was. Uh, exactly that, that the uh, outcome of, of Congress elections and, and Senate, uh, because we have a two-tier system with lower house and, and Senate, um, let, showed uh, a stronger uh, performance of those center and center-right uh, parties, which, you know, in, in history, they have been the opposition of the Workers' Party, the party of, of President Lula. So, uh, which means that in order to approve um, material subjects, uh, for example, changes in, in, in constitution or anything uh, more material, even uh, some of the projects around um, uh, more spending, uh, those will require a broader support and those will require the Lula administration to lean more towards the center in order to gather that support. In, in isolation, the, the PT party doesn't have support to push through any um, agenda on its own. Um, so that is a key um, a key aspect or a key positive aspect of, of the outcome of this election. So 
you know, I guess on, on that, I, I'm I'm going into this because I think the the checks and balances that we have now they are very important. They will, in our view, reduce risks of any extremes. But yeah. there is there are scenarios within that, uh, and we are still waiting to see what will be uh, the outcome. I think a, a major signal will be the announcement of the team uh, and and key seats in terms of ministers and and. Um, and the cabinet of the president, which is expected to come in the coming months. Now, uh, while we wait for this, there are one area where we have a, perhaps more certainty and view. I think based on, on the uh, comments from the campaign and the program of the, of the PT party and Lula, uh, there's a clear view on how they will treat sectors, or at least that's how we have been reading. I think uh, on the one hand, you see a great support to uh, consumption uh, companies because of all the uh, aim to invest more uh, in terms of the social spend and, and even support some of those areas. Take, for example, uh, uh, the education sector or the lower income housing. Uh, those com companies exposed to those sectors could, could benefit. Um, in other areas as well, for example, Lula administration comes with a stronger agenda in terms of the environmental um, uh, commitments um, and willing to put Brazil sort of uh, back in the, in, in the global stage of uh, the climate debate in terms of um, you know repositioning the country as a, uh, a as a major uh, you know not only a natural resource base but also uh, uh, a, a powerhouse of a renewable energy and so on. And, and that could be positive for Brazil, that could be positive for agricultural companies in terms of securing new trade agreements and, and new avenues uh, uh, for, uh, for, 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 for investments within the country as well. Now, against that, we have uh, concerns around what would be the direction uh, for state-owned companies and I guess the flagship on that debate, um, or in the spotlight of, of that debate, there is Petrobras, the state oil company, where um, you know it is a, a company which has very good assets, uh, investors like, very attractive dividends and, and very attractive valuations for the company. But uh, it is expected that um, the new government could change a little bit the strategy and use the company a bit more to invest in new areas. There are debates around them going back into refining investments and so on. So, uh, you know, state-owned uh, companies uh, like Petrobras or even uh, Banco de Brazil, uh, which um, uh, Banco de Brazil, we, we don't own areas where we are much more wary about as well as perhaps some of the regulated sectors that could go through a period of uncertainty as the new government settles in. And just finally on, on Brazil then, um, so how is the transition of power going? Because I know there was some concern initially that maybe Bolsonaro and his supporters would um, would contest the transition. Is, is that all being settled down now? Um, have uh, Bolsonaro's supporters accepting the result? And can we just move on now? Yes, uh, we, we hope so. I mean, every day there's something happening, like small demonstrations. That since the the end of elections, there, there were uh, there were smaller groups, for example, protesting roads and so on. But those those have been mostly cleared. 
Um, and I think the president himself have, has been quiet, which generated some anxiety during the first few days that he, he would dispute or he was preparing something to dispute the outcome. But so far, nothing happened. And his uh, close allies have um, even uh, publicly uh, sort of accepted the outcome and are collaborating with the transition team that is that has been put in, announced by, by Lula. So, so, so far, so good. Uh, and, and actually, the removal, that was seen as a major tail risk for Brazil, that we could go into an institutional crisis that the new president, the, the incumbent president, could uh, dispute the outcome and so on. So the fact that we are seeing a sort of a smooth transition so far, it's also something that, that underpins our, our positive view. I think there was that overhang that was somewhat priced in, in into markets. So uh, by removing that alone, you could perhaps uh, you know, move forward and focus. Investors can focus, uh, again, on fundamentals of companies and the market. Very good. And so how much does the role of, of, of the politics in Latin America, how, how much does it play a role in your stock picking? Um, I mean, it seems like you can't really ignore it. You have to consider it a bit. Is that fair? Or? That's it. I guess, uh, you know, we would describe ourselves as sort of uh, bottom-up uh, stock pickers. And that's where uh, we spend most of our time discussing companies, discussing uh, business outlooks, uh, outlook for earnings, and so on and so forth. However, uh, when you are investing in emerging markets and and you and especially in Latin America, as you as you rightly said, there's no way to ignore it because at at some point the macro could hit the mic the micro, as you say, right? The the the, the companies themselves. Uh, I think one clear transmission channel uh, sometimes is just the uncertainty. Uh, in general, that it, that it can generate, um, and and that uncertainty feeds into sort of uh, as a starting point as a higher cost of capital for a given country or, or a given sector, depending on the level of uncertainty that it generates. So these are things that we of course um, have to monitor. But but I guess our focus in sort of trying to identify what we call long-term quality companies mean that we're always looking for investment pieces that are less reliant on uh, regulatory aspects, that they are less reliant on, um, you know, on, say, the headline GDP of a country, and that they are much more underpinned by a sort of self-help um, characteristics and, 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 you know, and, and opportunities for growth and investment. So, when you do that, you sort of um, uh, eliminates a little bit that direct uh, political risk. But at the macro level, uh, you know, you need to keep to keep an eye, of course, uh, and 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 you know, and, and take a view. So so um, we do that, and and I think actually sometimes that can be we talk about risk, but sometimes could be uh, opportunities as well. Uh, if you are able to identify, um, you know, areas of the markets where uh, you see an excessive discount being baked in uh, into companies that where the fundamentals are good, that they are not necessarily impacted by the, the political risk, uh, SMC, uh, and, and we can find opportunity to invest in those and back those businesses for, with a longer term view. So, 
we take it as a, in both aspects, right? In 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 making a view on uh, the risks, but also on the opportunities for for the companies we look at. Excellent. And now let's uh, let's turn to Mexico because I believe about a quarter of of the fund is invested there. So, um, what's the economic situation there? Why do you like Mexico, and and what are the sort of companies uh, you're investing in? Sure. Mexico is a, it is an interesting place where um, for some time, I mean, it, there has been criticism to Mexico sort of a, as an investment destination. I think coming back to your last last point, I think we mm. saw uh, changes in government with the um, uh, AMLO uh, coming into power. Uh, that was uh, three three years ago. Um, and that led to an overhang of, of Mexico, and actually, uh, and he, he was quite left wing. Is that is that right? So that sort of scared the market. That, and that's it. For for context, he he was more let's say left winning, uh, with a lot of uh, commitments on social. And actually, in some of some of the areas, he was very specific in having strong views. For example, in reforming the energy sector. Uh, in bringing more presence of the state-owned companies in the energy sector, which is, uh, you know, was a step back versus what the country was doing uh, historically in terms of opening up the country for private investments and so on. So in some of those areas, uh, in fact, we saw uh, investments contracting in Mexico, private investments, and that led for some period of time to a lot of uncertainty and, uh, and a discount in valuations for, for Mexican stocks. Now, fast forward, what we actually saw happening is that, yes, in some of the areas that were, that were weakness, so private, private investments and FDI in Mexico have weakened on the back of this uncertainty, uh, and that has dragged headline GDP. However, there are pockets of growth in Mexico which remain very, very strong and that's where we have, um, again, focusing on the bottom up, but we have uh, mostly uh, position uh, the portfolio to, to benefit from those areas. So, for example, the consumer sector in Mexico has been very resilient and, and, and strong. Uh, we like companies like Walmart, uh, uh, the, the Walmart subsidiary in Mexico, <laughs> very strong operations, very profitable. Companies like Arca, Contao, Coke Bottler uh, going through a very good period of, of profitability enhancement and also has some exposure to the U.S. where the business was very strong. Um, and, and we can mention um, others in consumption. Or uh, other area which is very attractive in Mexico is the whole nearshoring, uh, the so-called nearshoring uh, uh, of uh, supply chains. That means that uh, with the um, new agreement of NAFTA, uh, we saw uh, uh, ties between uh, Mexico and, of course, uh, the United States and Canada uh, strengthening from a trade uh, perspective. Uh, but also, uh, when you move into broader geopolitical concerns, such as um, we had the uh, concerns around tensions between US and China. Uh, we had yeah. the pandemic bringing a major hit to supply chains more globally, and especially the supply chain came in, coming from, from, from Asian markets where 
um, the, the, the lockdown measures were very strict, uh, suddenly Mexico stacked up again as a place where you could build your manufacturing base, you could be in, in irrespective of the of, of the sector. Um, historically, the country was known for, of course, the uh, the the car industry, given the proximity to the, the U.S. But but we see technology companies moving into Mexico and willing to build facilities there, and that's very so. Beneficial. A lot of companies are are moving production out of China and and into Mexico just to. Obviously, have that closer geographic exposure to the US. Correct. And, and that's, greater security. That's, that's why we, we have uh, some have been using this term of near shoring, right? The, mm. the bringing proximity to uh, of supply chains and rejigging supply chains a little bit to reduce super geographical risks on that supply chain. So, so Mexico on this side of the world stacks up very well because it's a cheap labor force but also a highly qualified labor force that you can find in Mexico. Uh, and, and again, in terms of logistics, very close to the U.S. with favorable uh, trade agreements as well. So, so within that, we have found companies that benefit from that, such as an industrial uh, real estate company called Vesta, which is exposed directly to the regions where some of those companies are going. Uh, and building up sort of um, industrial warehouses and so on, or even the banks in Mexico where they have an exposure to the northern part of the country and they benefit from the whole uh, supply chain uh, and, and, um, and, and manufacturing uh, industries within those regions. So overall, those pockets of growth are probably the ones that, um, you know, even we, even having some concerns around the headline figures in terms of GDP for Mexico uh, are the ones that uh, uh, have been very resilient and the ones that we continue to believe that they can uh, perform well going forward. And Latin American equities have had a good year relative to other stock markets. Um, why have they held up so well? Because I guess traditionally they're probably thought of as more of a risk on market and potentially sensitive to high US rates in the past, and yet they have held up pretty well. So so what's going on? Yes, I think you, you, we need to separate a little bit what is um, the economies uh, sometimes from what is the uh, index composition. And, and I think that that is important because um, every now and then uh, you, you can see uh, if you discuss the outlook for the economies itself. We, we may lead uh, or exit this conversation with a lukewarm view. Uh, there are always uncertainty around where, again, headline GDP for Latin America will, will go uh, and, and, and uh, the fundamentals behind that. But, but one thing that, it's, that impacts both the economies and the, and the index composition is that Latin American economies and, and again, uh, the equity markets are heavily exposed to um, commodities. Um, commo Latin American uh, index is probably one of the heaviest in terms of having exposure. If you add that um, uh, materials, energy, um, and, uh, and, uh, and the more cyclical sectors uh, in, in, the, in the EM context, and those were sectors which benefited from uh, higher energy prices. If you take uh, the, the price of oil uh, going up, um, 
or even the um, the whole uh, inflationary pressures on the commodity companies that um, as a result of, uh, you could name quite a few factors, but as a result of supply issues during the pandemic, but also more broadly from uh, years of underinvestment uh, into uh, new capacity across the commodity space, uh, when the global economy uh, emerged from the pandemic, we suddenly saw shortfalls uh, across, uh, you know, it was a common theme across almost every commodity. So the uh, Latin American companies, or if you take, you know, uh, the, the benchmark as the main reference, it benefited a lot from that. Now, another sector where Latin America has a big exposure to uh, is um, uh, the banking sector. Uh, the banking sector is a beneficiary of high rates in general, if I can make a it varies according to country, but if you think around high inflation and higher rates, those are typically positive for EM banks uh, and, and Latin American banks for sure. So um, we saw a very good performance of, of, of banks as well. And uh, as they emerged from the pandemic with strong balance sheets, and suddenly we saw a relatively fast recovery uh, in profitability uh, and even faster than what we witnessed in, in some other markets. So, um, so when I, when I, when I, you know, describe sort of the weight of the benchmark, I think it helps you uh, understand why uh, we saw such a good performance and, and, uh, you know, again, irrespective of what was happening with the, in terms of the, the headline GDP of, of the economies, but, but in, the important aspect is that um, we see uh, the, 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 the earnings outlook for companies uh, in, in Latin America as positive as well, because those things, uh, uh, you know, you still have sort of a high, uh, if you take the energy sector, you still have a high oil prices supporting results for those companies. Uh, material sector, while we saw some correction in commodities, it's still a higher level than it was uh, not long ago. Uh, and on the consumption side as well, uh, we see uh, companies that have focused on cost cutting, that have focused on efficiency, uh, very well positioned to deliver good earnings, especially as the region uh, sort of uh, exits or, 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 or uh, enters in a phase of stability in interest rate hikes as it has moved a bit faster in controlling the inflation uh, pressures when compared to some of the EM and even DM countries. So, so that's a, a scenario where um, sort of underpins a constructive view for the market from both sort of the um, operating environment for companies, but also when you go more granular into the, the balance sheet and the PL of Latin American companies today. Yeah, I mean that that sort of feeds into my my final question, which is why why should investors consider investing in Latin America? Um, I think I, I think you've answered it, but but why why should I why should investors bother now when other stock markets are down pretty materially? Um, obviously, um, interest rates have risen. You can get pretty good yields in terms of bonds. Why why should should um, UK investors, I guess, bother with Latin America today? Yes, that's uh, it's it's a fair question, and I guess that there are two elements of it. I think um, 
Latin America has has historically seen sort of a, as a bit of a of a tactical uh, trade rather than, mm-hmm. than than a structural allocation. Given, and I think that's a, that's a nature of Latin America, given sort of the uh, the, the high beta uh, to the external environment, uh, as we discussed. Uh, the exposure to commodities at times uh, was uh, sort of uh, was seen even as a risk for so, for some for many of the countries. But um, depending, it depends a lot on, on of course, uh, the, the view for what is going to happen abroad. But what we see right now is that when you look at the fundamentals again uh, of the economies and, and bringing that to the operating environment of companies. Uh, the external backdrop, if, if you draw, if you think around, uh, it's still a sort of um, an inflationary environment. Of course, there is the issue of rising rates in developed markets and the U.S. and the stronger dollar potentially uh, impacting uh, uh, the, the economies. But Latin America is a place which is relatively uh, insulated or hedged even on that because, again, the exposure to commodities uh, is a, is a is a good source uh, of of dollars for the economies. Uh, the companies benefit. The, the exporters ultimately benefit uh, from 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 a stronger dollar in in terms of bringing that that cash flow back to the economies. And and if we think around, um, you know, the importance of, of, of Latin America. As a um, as a natural resource base, uh, and we could discuss here uh, Latin America being one of the leading producer of um, of copper, for example, which is a commodity which will be needed in terms of the um, energy energy transition and electrification trends. Uh, Brazil is one of the major agricultural producers and therefore a major supplier to China, but even more importantly now, is positioning itself to be an alternative to, to, to the supplies that we, you, you had maybe from places like uh, Russia or Ukraine. Uh, and, um, and, and, and you keep name uh, other uh, uh, sectors as well, such as the energy sector, which again, uh, the region is very well positioned in terms of having low cost uh, reserves and still uh, high quality assets to to explore on that. So when you combine those things, we believe those uh, provide a good backdrop uh, for an environment where um, inflation is high uh, globally. There are challenges around the supply of natural resource uh, and, uh, you know, uh, and and then uh, Latin America stack up uh, uh, very well from that, um, from that top down, top down positioning. Now, finally, just to finalize the point, I guess when you go into the specifics of, of the region, yes, it had an outperformance, but in the context of history, that outperformance, the region had been lagging uh, the broader equity markets, even the EM, uh, in a longer history. So the recovery, uh, although we have seen a recovery, we're still seeing the region as uh, trading below historical levels in terms of its relative valuations. And uh, therefore, we believe uh, both the combination of the operating environment being supportive and the valuations being attractive provide 
uh, hopefully provides you a, a good win, a good tailwind for investors to to invest in the region. Thank you very much, Eduardo. Uh, really interesting insights, and um, thank you for speaking to us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much for for having me. And if you'd like to learn more about the Aberdeen Latin American Equity Fund, please visit fundcaliber.com. And please remember to subscribe to the Investing on the Go podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember, we've been discussing individual companies to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these companies at the time of listening. Elite ratings are based on Fund Calibre's research methodology and are the opinion of Fund Calibre's research team only. Mm-hmm.